Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. When I did the original research for my oral history book back in the late 1980s, I was determined to tell the story of the LGBTQ civil rights movement beyond New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Every city, as I came to discover, had its own history and stories as the gay rights struggle spread across the country. And that's how I stumbled across Boise, Idaho's 1955 homosexual panic. There's no other way to describe it. John Garassi, a journalist, wrote about it in his 1966 book, The Boys of Boise. As he explained, it all started with the arrest of two men on morals charges and the false claim by a Boise probation officer that about a hundred boys were involved in a homosexual ring. As the phony scandal unfolded over several months, the police questioned nearly 1,500 Boise citizens in a town that had only 40,000 residents. They gathered the names of hundreds of suspected homosexuals, many of them in heterosexual marriages. In the end, 16 men were arrested, 10 went to jail. For most of them, their only crime was engaging in sex with another consenting male. I found it hard to imagine what the lasting impact was on Boise's gay citizens and the families of those men whose lives were upended by a senseless witch hunt. I had to go to Boise. But the challenge was finding someone who was gay, who remembered what happened, and who would talk to me. In 1989, this wasn't exactly a piece of Boise history that anyone was proud of and wanted to revisit, whether they went to jail or just watched from the sidelines. So I called Boise's Gay Community Center and explained what I was looking for. They had one name for me, Morris Foote, a retired farmer who lived in Middleton, Idaho, about a half hour northwest of Boise. Morris was a World War II veteran who was born on June 11, 1925 in Caldwell, Idaho. At the time of the homosexual panic, he was working in Boise's Capitol building as an elevator operator. I called Morris, and we made a date to meet at the cafe next to where he lived. There was one condition. We couldn't talk about anything gay during lunch. That would have to wait until we went back to his house. Morris didn't want to risk anyone overhearing our conversation so close to home. Two months later, I'm on a plane to Boise. It would be my first time in Idaho. 
So here's the scene. Morris's directions take me to a street just a block from the center of Middleton. It's a sleepy farming community that's clearly seen better days. I pull up in front of Morris's green mobile home, which sits on the same lot as a pawn shop and a pint-sized cafe. I step out of my rental car and take in the landscape. A few one-story bungalows, some well-kept, some not, and as far as the eye can see, there's a lot of empty space and it's very, very flat. I walk over to the cafe and that's where I find Morris, his friend Sammy, and Morris's younger brother, who has severe cerebral palsy. Morris had explained to me that his brother moved in with him after their mother died, and he wanted his friend Sammy there for support. Morris is a compact, heavyset man. He looks like a retired Amish farmer out of central casting, with a long white beard and old-fashioned glasses. Over iced tea and sandwiches, we talk about everything, except what I'm there to talk about. An hour later, we each take our places in Morris's cramped living room. I clip my microphone to the strap of Morris's overalls, settle back into a well-worn easy chair, and press record. Interview with Morris Foote, Thursday, November 16, 1989, 2.30 p.m., at the home of Morris Foote in Middleton, Idaho. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. What was Boise like at that time? Was it a busy town with lots of bars or? Main Street was Skid Row. You wouldn't recognize it now. You'll see what is now is the Egyptian theater. Mm -hmm. Across the street was bar after bar after bar after bar after bar. And uh, you go into some of the bars and very plentiful homosexual activity right in the restrooms, opened. Really? It was too opened. Uh -huh. And so they were just asking for trouble. So if you met someone at a bar, you'd have sex there. You didn't go back to someone's house, did you? Oh, you wouldn't have sex with anyone sitting in the bar, no. Well, what, what did you do then? I don't know. You went to the bathroom, took a leak, and then someone come up to you and said, would you like to have it? And, and then you go back to the bar, you never see the guy again. And you wouldn't talk to each other? No. Never see the guy again. Mm -hmm. Did you have any sense that, that being gay was bad at the time? Absolutely not. Uh -huh. One time, about 50, 1955, the statesman put an editorial out that <coughs> all homosexuals must, activity must cease. It was a sin of society. And there was a homosexual ring operating in Boise, and it must be put down. I looked at that and said, is that act illegal? Here they had the man in jail on a felony warrant. You're going to see him in the pen for the rest of his life for doing it. I thought any time he had sex and privacy, no one would bother you, uh -huh. as long as it was an adult. Here was two adult men. Do you remember seeing the headline that day when, when it first broke about the arrest? Mm-hmm. What did you think? Well, I think I better move out of Boise and not be around there anymore. I mean, did you get calls from friends of yours who were being picked up or people no, were being questioned? No. no one knew me. No one knew you? Mm-mm. Don't tell your name. And I don't know their name. Uh-huh. During that whole investigation, did you ever go into Boise at all? Not after that. Why didn't you go? Well, I just decided I wouldn't be a part of it. Because? I didn't want to go to the penitentiary. That's a good reason. 
And I still don't know when the statute of limitations are now. Mm -hmm. Well, I told you I had sex with someone where I could still be put in court on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know what statute of limitations? I don't know. I don't think it's seven years. Growing up in, in high school, did you know any other kids who were gay or did you even know what gay was? I didn't even know what I was. Did you know you were different? No. Did you think about it at all? No. No crushes on boys? I always went around with boys, yeah. but in, during that period of growing up, that's customary for boys to go to boys in high school. Mm -hmm. So I went with a boy <laughs> from uh, about seventh grade all through high school through college. The same boy? Mm hmm So he was your best friend? Yeah, we owned property, owned a car together just before graduating college. So he took me aside, and then he told me what I was. I didn't know. He wanted sex. I never had any sex. With him? Mm. All those years? Mm. So, uh, so he propositioned me and told me what I was and explained what a gay homosexual was. He said I was one, and I had just uh, taken abnormal psychology, studying those things, but in that book only about a paragraph on homosexuality. said about 3% of the population had it. And it went right on, didn't hardly mention it in the textbook. What I bet today would be a lot more on it. But you and, and you hadn't heard of that before, homosexuality? Mm -hmm. Didn't pay much attention to it. Uh -huh. So he explained it. Because he went off and got married. To a woman? Oh, yes. And he was straight. He was, was he gay? No, he was straight. He, was straight. he probably had some fun in the Navy. Mm -hmm. So then I, I got interested in started going to Boise finding boyfriends. <laughs> Did you miss him? I miss him all my life. Uh-huh. One of the sad things that last year went to his funeral. Oh. They had a private internment, but they notified me they wanted me to be present. And I was honored. Did you see him during all these years? Mm, about twice or three times. Mm -hmm. Did you know how much you loved him? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that just makes me sad. That's sad. Uh, when did you start hearing about other places having gay rights groups and marches and all that business? Oh, probably after the gay community in Boise started. The gay bar opened in 77, started going to Boise again. After, that's after just 20 years later. Yes, right. It wasn't like the old hiding the hall downstairs nor the gas light where you never seen a homosexual picture or there wasn't any gay talk at all or anything. This was strictly gay. You knew uh, who you entered into. When the uh, gay movement got started, I considered myself part of it. Right the very first time here in the bar, then I got invited to join the gay rap group. Why do you join the gay rap group? socialize, uh -huh. meet other gays. Uh -huh. It's a wonderful time to get together. When did you join MCC? Metropolitan Community Church, 1978, when it started. Uh -huh. Why did you join? Because I like evening worship service. Mm -hmm. I've always liked evening worship service. Mm -hmm. Of course, being in my sexuality, that fit right nice and moved right into it. When did this, this uh, march come about? Uh, the, the gay group in MCC didn't protest much out in public here in Boise, in Boise or Middleton did. It was kind of private, I would think. Uh, you mean when we marched in the state capitol? Mm -hmm. 
We were having a district convention just before our meeting, two days before, I think, Reverend Jerry Farrell scheduled a rally on the state capitol steps. Why did he do that? Uh, he was going to every state capitol at that time. I think he was trying to organize a political party. I'd say 82, 83, along in there. So a lot of us gays went to the Jerry Farrell crusade. So you so, went to his talk? Oh, yes. You always want to go to the opposition to what they have to say. He spoke so much against homosexuality. And then when the convention started, then they, they decided to vote it, let's have a march to counteract what we had here a day or so ago. We'll have it at 11 p.m. at night so that those that well, don't want to be on camera, they can kind of shy away and they don't want to lose their job or anything over right. And they had 500 march. Were you worried about marching at all? No, not at all. What they couldn't be seen on TV. Uh -huh. Just a mass of humanity out there. Mm -hmm. so that was a march. And Reverend uh, Frieda Smith, who was born in Pocatala and is one of the elders of the church, to give the most wonderful talk that night on the state capitol. Do you remember any of what she said? The word is out that we are human beings, too. Mm -hmm. We should have our rights, too. What do you think the rights of gay, gay people should be? Equal rights. I think one thing we need to do that sexual acts among con two consenting adults done in private should be legal. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're getting anywhere now with the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. I hear talk about a, a gay pride march this, this uh, spring. Oh, someone wrote in the uh, paper they'd have one, but... I don't know. Are you in favor of a, of a parade? Yes, I guess so. Why do you say you guess so? I don't know why I'd be here or not. I'd probably be in San Francisco. How come? <laughs> 300,000 to about 30 people. You mean there'll be 30 people at this march? Yeah, about 300,000, man. <laughs> right. Do you think you'll go to the parade here? I don't know whether it will materialize or not. Despite Morris's doubts, Boise's first Pride March materialized. And Morris was there after all. And not only was he there, he was one of the organizers. And that's despite the fact he was still in the closet in his hometown of Middleton. At makinggayhistory.com, you can see a photo of a clean-shaven Morris foot standing on the steps of Idaho State Capitol, holding a rainbow flag in broad daylight along with the rest of the organizers of Boise's first Gay and Lesbian Freedom Parade and Festival. That was on June 23, 1990. Every time I look at that photo with Morris and the rainbow flag, my eyes fill with tears. When I think about Morris and his journey from the homosexual panic of 1955 to joining the mostly gay Metropolitan Community Church, going out on a protest march, and helping to organize Boise's first Pride Parade and Festival, I'm reminded that the fight for LGBTQ civil rights isn't just the story of dramatic events and major accomplishments. It's the accumulation of individual acts by people like Morris, like you, and me too. It's standing up and being counted and joining with other like-minded people and fighting for shared goals. It's true that we're stronger together. Morris Foote died on December 4th, 1998. He was 72. He lived long enough to make his own bit of history. 
To learn more about Morris and the Boys of Boise scandal, go to makinggayhistory.com. That's where you can also listen to all our previous episodes and sign up for our newsletter. I may be the voice of Making Gay History, but without my dedicated team, there'd be no podcast. Thank you, Sarah Birmingham, Jenna Weiss Berman, Casey Holford, Jonathan Dozer Ezel, Zach Seltzer, and Will Coley. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. We'd also be nowhere without all of you who have helped spread the word about making gay history far and wide, from Cambodia to Norway and the Middle East to the Pacific Northwest. We're grateful beyond words and hope you'll continue to share what you've heard with friends, family, and colleagues. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives Foundation. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long, until next time. Do you have any more any questions for me before I You ask? were born and raised in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've been gay all your life. Yep. You've never been married. No. Nope. Except to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever faced any persecution, job loss, or...? Uh, other than the usual stuff, no. Nothing out of the ordinary. Can you tell another gay person by looking at him? Can I? Mm-hmm. Some. How do you tell a gay person? By looking. It's just by eye contact. Uh, yeah. What causes homosexuality? You want the latest studies? Yes. Excuse me one sure. moment, Judge.